As we settle now into your word, Father, we, we thank you, first of all, for your grace, which is first spoken to us, that has revealed yourself to us in your word. Father, take now the goodness of your word and the wonder of who you are and implant it deep into our hearts. As we see your word, as we hear it, may we be more than hearers, Lord, but rather that you would so seep into our hearts that it would affect us deeply and it would outpour for your glory as we love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and we love our neighbors ourselves. Lead us now in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, as we were coming back from the cruise, we, we had a great kind of escape from reality, right? You know, no, no real hard work. All the food was provided for us. We just kind of went and got, got it. I, you know, my sons ate like six meals a day, and it was great. It was great. Uh, I tried to do the same, but I ended up, I, I, I couldn't. So, but we got a nice dose back into welcome back into the real world uh, as our cruise had ended. As our cruise were ended, basically you had 4,000 people trying to leave the boat at the same time. Everybody's tempers, nobody, everybody was back, they were off vacation mode. So we weren't this chill beach theme going on. It was <laughs> Welcome back to civilization. Welcome back to the ways of the world. And so you had this incredibly long line. The longest line we ever had was trying to get off the boat. And guess what? People got a little testy. They got a little flummoxed. Their tempers began to flare. It began first, as you began to see, people were a little confined. We're a little tight place. It was a reminder that we're no longer in COVID era, right? As we were packed in there like sardines. But then you began seeing people call out at the end of the line, hey, hey, oh, that's my family up there. I got to go be with them. It wasn't their family. Everybody knew it wasn't their family. Oh, and so you began people seeing people cut through the line. And so, as you can imagine, some people began to get a little upset. And they began making their voices known. One particular lady began shouting, I don't want to hear anything more about my family's up there. Well, what had just happened is there was a person behind us that, that had just happened. And so, this woman, this, and these were both two women, both of them, I don't know their exact age, but certainly old enough to be grandmothers, they begin to have what you might call a disagreement. <laughs> a very loud disagreement that divulged into language that let's just say we would not want to hear these children use. They began getting into a downright fight. And it was right there next to us. And I was very, very uncomfortable. And as these people, as these two ladies began to fight and just go over and my mind, I'm just looking at it. This is the most senseless argument I have ever seen in my life. It was silly. Absolutely silly. Two people who really should have just kept their mouth shut. Should have just let it go. And, and one of the ladies' husband was just saying, just let it go. Just let it go. Just let it. Just, I will not let it go. And, 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 and on it went. And it just continued to escalate. And finally, one lady just said, God bless you. I'm done with you. And the other lady said, don't you bring God into this. Interesting. 
Now, as a pastor, I'm not going to let that go by without a sermon illustration. Come on. I mean, come on. But yet, as we look at that, what was going on there behind that? It was the idea that I am trying to get my way. It's kind of like what we've been talking about as we've been looking throughout 1 Samuel. And one of the key things we've seen in 1 Samuel is two different ways of doing life. One way of doing life is like King Saul and where he is wanting to build his kingdom and invite God into it. But there's another way. This is the way that scripture is proclaiming to us. And that is that we begin to see that all of life is God's story. And God is calling us to be part of his story. It may sound like the same thing, but the devil is in all the details. Trying to stir us to keep our eyes off of the true king. To understand that you can't not bring God into this. That to not bring God into our wants and our desires, even our conflicts, is to ultimately try to set up rival kingdoms. Rival kingdoms that promise us to to give us what we want. That promise to feel that itch, to make us feel secure. But ultimately what they only do is they enslave us. Once again, as so often has happened, as we look here at 1 Samuel, we see what almost comes across as deja vu. Two people, Saul and David. Two different visions of a kingdom. One who wants to just say, I'm only going to bring God into this when it's convenient for me. And the other one who looks and says, God's always in this. I'm always submitting myself and my story and my wants and my desires to God. And so we pick up in verse 1 of chapter 26. And and, and you look at this and you almost wonder, are are we we reading the passage we read a few weeks ago? This seems so similar. And and it's because so many of the the details are similar. That's life. We, we don't live in some video game when we go from one level to the next. We're dealing with the same temptations, the same issues over and over and over again. In verse 1 of chapter 26. Then the Ziphites came to Saul at Gabeah. Ziphites, does that sound familiar? Yes, they're the exact same ones that tried to betray David earlier in chapter 23. The Ziphites came to Saul at Gabeah saying... Is not David hiding himself at the hill of Achilah, which is to the east of Jerishmon? Uh, and so Saul rose and went down to the wilderness of Ziph with 3,000 chosen men of Israel to seek David in the wilderness of Ziph. And so what do you see right off the bat? It's the same location, same wilderness, same hill. Saul had realized he was wrong in the last one, but now he's presented with the same situation, the same temptation. And just as before, he can't help himself. He sees an opportunity to establish his kingdom through power. And so just like he did in the cave of Engedi, he takes 3,000 of his choice men to try to kill David and his 600. But there is something a little bit different as we continue on. And Saul encamped into the hill of Achilah, which is beside the road in the east of Jerishmoon. 
But David remained in the wilderness. You see, David isn't exactly where the people thought he was. He isn't exactly. You see, last time Saul was so close onto his trail, he moved into the cave and didn't even realize David was in that cave. He's tempted and he goes out. He falls into that temptation. But we see he's not the only one who's tempted here. He's not the only one who says, hey, here's an opportunity for me to get what I want through the means and the power and the ways of the world. Because David, like I said, he now gets the opportunity to be as much of the hunter as the hunted. Then David sent out spies and he learned that Saul had indeed come. You have to imagine he's sitting there saying, oh, really, again? Haven't we gone through this? And then David rose and he came into the place where Saul had, uh, <clears throat> had encamped. And David saw the place where Saul lay with Abner, the son of Ner, the commander of his army. And Saul was lying within the encampment while the army was, in, ooh, while the army was encamped around him. And then David said to Ahimelech the Hittite, and Joab, the brother of Abashi, the son of Jer- uh, Jeruiah, who will go down with me into the camp to Saul? Now, this Abishai uh, is actually David's nephew. That son of uh, Zer- Zeruiah is actually Zeruiah is David's sister. We know this from other parts of scripture. And she had three sons and all of them go into David's service. All of them become uh, part of his fighting men, uh, some of his biggest lieutenants. And they're all hot-headed. They're all incredibly bloodthirsty. They're all incredibly rash. And as much as they, they help David, in many ways, they're all, he has to keep them in check because they're constantly ready to just kill, right? And so we see, we see that fully evident here. Uh, in 3b and Abishai said I will go down with you so David and Abishai went into the army by night and there lay Saul sleeping with the encampment and with his his spear stuck to the ground at his head now Saul's spear has been a constant theme throughout you've seen he's constantly holding this spear in many ways it's a sign of his uh, royalty is a sign of his position, a sign of who he is. And so we first see it when we see he's actually trying to hurl this spirit, David, when David was just in his midst, you know, playing music to try to sue them. And so you imagine David looks in and he sees this, this spear that David has been throwing at him, been trying to hurl at him. He's like, huh, isn't that interesting? Look how convenient that is. This nice little spear right at his head. I don't know about you, but my mind certainly gets tempted a little. And Abner and the army lay around him, and and Abishai said to David, God has given your enemy into your hand this day. Now, does that sound familiar? It should. Because it's very similar to what Saul said when he realized that that David had taken refuge in a city that had walls around him. And he says, oh, look, God has given David into my hand. And now the, the, the coin is flipped, so to speak. Abishai is now looking at this as a potential, look, God's done this. 
You're in the clear. This is God's doing, surely. Look at what he's done. God has given your enemy into your hand this day. Now, please let me pin him into the earth. And with one stroke of the spear, and I will not strike him twice. So in other words, he's saying, look, you don't have the stomach for it. Guess what? I'll do it. You got plausible deniability. You don't have to get your hands dirty. I'll take care of it. I'll be your hatchet man. I'll take care of this. But David said to Abishai, Do not destroy him, for who can put out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? You see, we have these two different responses to temptation that takes place here. Two different responses to it. We see Saul's response, which is a response of the way of the Lord, uh, the way of the world. Hey, I see this opportunity to establish my kingdom, to get what I want. It's an easy thing. I have the resources. It's just on me to have the will to go out and do it, to have the nerve, to have the determination. We see David in many ways, in many surprising ways, it's the same opportunity. He has the opportunity. He has the means. He has the ways. But he sees something different. He longs for and sees how the kingdom should be established. And it is not the way of the world. Now, many of you, you may be saying, what's the big deal? Nobody's looking to make me a king. Nobody's looking to make me establish me a kingdom. But the truth is, each and every one of us, as we try to do things and try to seek a life according to our own making, we long to build our own kingdoms. We long to make a kingdom for ourselves. This is, in fact, in many ways, what we call the American dream. That we're able to have our own little kingdom of a house, a home, a property. And heaven forbid the government that tries to take any of it away from us. And so we even have the saying, right? Every man's home is his castle. Now, we're 2023, we're egalitarian, so we recognize it's not just the men's castle, it's everybody's castle. And many of you, however, as, we, as much as that is a saying, as much as that becomes the longing of our hearts, the truth is, if our home is our castle, we're sitting there wondering, why is everybody trying to teach me like the village idiot? Why does everyone seem like, it feels to me like I'm the joker? We say, this should be my kingdom. This should be my life. This should be my world. But it doesn't feel like we're kings. It doesn't feel like we're the master over our kingdom. It seems like everyone disrespects me. It feels like there's usurpers, these little 16-year-olds, right? And so we respond the ways of the world. We respond through anger. We respond through our words. We're going to bring everyone down a peg. We respond with the weapons of our day, passive aggression. We respond sometimes just by retreating into our daydreams, into our hobbies, into Netflix, into sports, ESPN. We say, if you're not going to give me my kingdom 
Here I will treat into a kingdom of my own mind. We also were given the promise that we can have in this world of consumerism. Whatever we want. And if we want a kingdom of sex. We want a kingdom that fulfills our most carnal desires. Then we can go get it. The ways of the world isn't necessarily waiting on God to provide a covenantal family through the covenant of marriage. There's much easier ways to establish your kingdom that you want through online pornography. Through apps that enable us to have meaningless encounters with the opposite sex. All these become ways which the world says, come establish your kingdom our way. And you know what? What we have found and what we've seen is David has the very same propensity and heart of evil just as Saul. We saw that in the previous encounter with Nabal. David get pushed. He gets challenged. He, he gets put down a little bit by the words of this fool Nabal. And what does he want to do? Let me take my men and let's go wipe him out. In other words, he's acting just like Saul. Which is to say the same evil that flowed through Saul's heart flowed also through David's heart. But this is where the importance of seeing the deja vu comes into play. You see, it's no accident that we see that what God is doing is he is shaping David. Again, it's understanding this isn't about David trying to build his kingdom and inviting God, but rather God is building his kingdom and he is inviting and bringing David in to be part of it. And as it becomes a God's story, God begins shaping the character according to his grace, his power, his will, his purposes. And so what we see is not only is by God's grace, David, who has the same propensity for evil as Saul, is able to find fellowship with God, is able to be forgiven by God. But God in his mercy and grace is shaping David. He is shaping him and he is changing him and he is giving him a longing for a different kingdom within there. And that is the promise for us as well. We get frustrated because we we deal with the same temptations, the same struggles, the same hardships, the same failures in trying to bring about our own kingdom. We wonder, why doesn't God just make it so much easier for us? And the answer is because he is shaping us. He is shaping us by his grace. Not because of who we are. He's not impressed by our efforts. But rather he is shaping us through the power of his spirit to be at work. And as he is at working in us, what we see in Hebrews chapter 12, he says this quite clearly. He says, it is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom the father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have earthly fathers who disciplined us 
and we respect them. So in other words, he's saying, this is, you should get this. God in his wisdom, when he formed and designed how the family should work, he designed it so that we get this foreshadowing of what God is ultimately doing in us and sanctifying us in our very most basic family relationships with fathers and sons. And he says, in respect to them, but he says, how much more as we look at the good father, shall we be more subject to the father's spirits than live? So in other words, just as we can look at the, the discipline and how God has used our earthly families to shape us for good, those earthly families who are at their best, quite frankly, evil, how much more will our heavenly father shape us and we can trust in his good discipline? he says this, for they disciplined for us for a short time as it seemed best for them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. What is the goal there? That we may share his holiness. For in the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. And I'm sure David would say, this is painful. This is annoying that I'm having to deal with this again. But look. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. See, God in his grace and his glory. He is not just committed. He's not committed to building for us a kingdom. He's committed to building us a life of holiness. Not a kingdom of our ease. In his goodness and in his grace, he is committed to developing in us a life of holiness, not a kingdom of ease. And that is not just a short term commitment. God, in his grace and his love, notice what it said there in Hebrews 12. Our parents discipline us for a short time. God's grace and love for us is not short term. It is eternal. And so God's commitment to your holiness does not end until it's completed in glory. You see, I have dealt in my years in pastoring. I have dealt with people who were months away from their deathbed. And yet God was still at work sanctifying them and shaping them. And making them more and more into the image of their beloved King, Jesus Christ. And what he is doing within this is he's given us a heart and a hunger to await for a better kingdom. A different kingdom. Take a look at verse 10. And David said, he's talking to Abishai. As the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him or his day will come to die or he will go down into battle and perish. No. So what's he saying? Is he just saying, oh, well, you know, Saul's not really that bad. What he's doing is not really that wrong. No, he's acknowledging he's he's sinful. He deserves judgment. He's saying. I'm not the one to give that. He's learned the lesson from Nabal. He saw how what God had done in Nabal and, and, and with Abigail stopping him and seeing how the Lord actually brought about vengeance and justice. And notice what he says. He's not just saying the Lord's going to strike him down. Maybe he'll just die. 
eventually. But where is this confidence? It's in the Lord. And that confidence in the Lord has given him patience. The Lord forbid that I should put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. But take now the spear that is his head and the jar of water and let us go. And so David took the spear and the jar of water from Saul's head and they went away. No man saw it or knew it, nor did any awake, for they were all asleep because a deep sleep from the Lord had fallen upon them. Now, what do you see? He's saying, I'm not going to touch the Lord's anointed. In his perspective, what is he actually saying? He's saying that the true king isn't Saul. It's not even David. The true king is God. Whoever sits on the throne is ultimately the one God decides who's on there because God is the king. In other words, he's looking at it and saying, if I try to do this myself, if I try to become a king through my own means, my own powers, what am I doing? I'm establishing a rival kingdom. I am becoming a usurper against God's true and good kingdom. And God has no rival, friends. God is able to submit himself because he had developed a trust and a longing for the true king. A peaceful fruit of righteousness that began to see, once again, it's not God uh, coming into David's story, but rather David is part of what God is doing. Part of God's overall plan of redemption, God's kingdom. And he began to see how weak and pathetic rival kingdoms against God's kingdoms are. And he began longing for the power and the wonder of the true king's kingdom. You see, we live in a world, in a society, in a culture that is absolutely obsessed with power. Is absolutely obsessed with power. Behind so much of what we see in the headlines of our world today, whether it's critical theory, whether it's, um, uh, whether it's right-wing politics, whatever it may be, it is an obsession with power to establish a kingdom through our power. And that oftentimes invades us right here in the church, even in the worship of God. See, many of us, if we're honest, some of the times we've come into church not to submit to a king, but because we're looking for some sort of magic formula that will enable us to control the, 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 the genie of the universe. Right? Or we're looking for some sort of therapy, you know, let's go find some sort of therapeutic way for us to have peace within ourselves. Let's use this kingdom to establish the kingdom we want. Or let's learn some moralistic ways to operate so that we'll be successful. You know, a good how-to. Or let's find a, a group of like, you know, we're upset with the way the world's going. So let's find some people who are also upset with the way the world's going. And we'll form a good, powerful political block that we'll be able to, to take care of it. But what scripture offers us, friends, what he gives us is not a manual to get your kingdom. 
what Scripture proclaims is the true king. Scripture doesn't give us a manual for setting up our own kingdom, but it proclaims boldly and loudly from Genesis to Revelation a coming king, a good king. And we see the revelation of this true and good king in the person of Jesus Christ. And this king comes in, and I believe it's a, this episode, like some of the, many of the other episodes in the wilderness in the Old Testament, for, are foreshadowings of the king as he begins his ministry in the wilderness. And what happens in the wilderness? He's tempted. He's tempted in the wilderness. And he's given three temptations. He's hungry, so turn this rock into bread. He's looking to make to, to be proclaimed as king. So just throw yourself off this ledge. God will protect you. It'll be supernatural. People will believe in you. And the third one, hey, instead of a kingdom that comes through the cross, through the death, just bow your knee to Satan and he will give him the kingdom. All these are temptations, temptations from the pit of hell to establish a kingdom outside of God's way of working. A kingdom that fits the ways of the world. Find the easy way to do it. Avoid suffering. Go with what works. Don't don't go to service. Don't go to sacrifice. Don't go to meekness. Go to power. And Jesus rejects them all. He, unlike anyone else, because he's God, fully God and fully human, he is without sin. Tempted in every way like us, but without sin. And instead, he proclaims this message of the kingdom and says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are those who are persecuted for my name's sake. He goes out and he seeks not the powerful. He doesn't rub nose with the, with the generals by which he can raise an army. But he goes out and he heals the lame and the lepers, the blind. He goes to prostitutes and sinners. And ultimately, he reveals his glory, not with a great powerful march on the capital of Rome. But by giving his life on a cross. And taking upon himself the wrath of God for sins. And rose again from the dead. And you see the king's message when he says the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as ransom for many. This is the kingdom of God. And by God, by his grace, as he saves us, not from anything that we've done, but completely by his grace through faith. He doesn't just give us a get out of jail card, escape the punishment for sin. He brings us as children into his kingdom and he begins to shape us. Titus 2 says the grace of God has appeared. Bringing salvation to all and teaching us to 
renounce all ungodliness. God's grace is at work within us, giving us a heart, a longing for a different, a better kingdom. So God's grace changes our prayers from God give us our kingdom come to God, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But notice as we go back to 1 Samuel, notice verse 12. Let's read that one more time, verse 12. And I find this so interesting. And we can wonder, why are they able to go in the middle of these 3,000 people? And just walk up to the king who's in the center of it? Well, we find out how. No man saw it or knew it, nor did any awake, for they were all asleep because a deep sleep from the Lord had fallen upon them. What's the key there? The Lord had brought this sleep upon them. God was at work. Now, what do we assume when we think through this? Hey, God's at work. Abishai, you must be right. God is at work. He's put all these people supernaturally to sleep. Surely this is God's hand to enable me to take this guy out. Thank you, God. That's not David's response. That's not what he sees God at work doing. As he has been shaped by the true king. As he's began to see and hunger for a different kingdom, he sees something else at play. He sees it not as an opportunity to get what he wants, but rather an opportunity to reveal the true king. An opportunity to show mercy. An opportunity to show faithfulness and waiting upon God. It uses an opportunity to glorify God. Verse 13. Then David went over into the other side and stood far off at the top of the hill with a great space between them. And David called to the army and to Abner, the son of Ner, saying, Will you not answer, Abner? And then, An- then Abner-, Abner answered, Who are you who calls to the king? And David said to Abner, Are you not a man? Who is like you in Israel? Why then have you not kept watch over the Lord, the king? For one of your... Of the people came in to destroy the king, your Lord. This thing that you have done is not good. As the Lord lives, you deserve to die because you have not kept watch over your Lord, the Lord's anointed. And now see where the king's spear is and the jar of water that was at his head. Saul recognized David's voice and said, Is this your voice, my son David? And David said, It is my voice. My Lord, O King. And he said, Why does my Lord pursue after his servants? What what have I done? What evil is on my hands? Now, therefore, let my Lord, the King, hear the words of his servants. If it is the Lord who has stirred up against you, against me, may he accept an offering. Now, what does he mean by that? There's a little bit of debate. What I think he means is he's actually calling Saul out. If God has stirred you up in this way, you need to present an offering. But if it is men, 
May they be cursed before the Lord. For they have driven me out this day that I should have no share in the heritage of the Lord. What does that mean? In other words, he has, what is the heritage of the Lord for the people of Israel in the Old Testament? It's the land. It's his covenant land within there. That's it's not to say anything about his relationship with God or the grace of God or who he is before God. It's, 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 that's what it's referring to. Saying, go serve other gods. He's not saying that God is absent outside of that. First Samuel has made that quite clear as God has been active in the land of the Philistines. It's just, it's, he's saying people are pushing away saying, hey, enough with this. Just go somewhere else. Go to Moab, right? Now, therefore, let not my blood fall into the earth away from the presence of the Lord. For the king of Israel has come out to but to seek a single flea like one who hunts a partridge in the mountains. And then Saul said, I have sinned. Return, my son David, for I will no more do, do you harm. Because my life was precious in your eyes this day. Behold, I have acted foolishly and have made a great mistake. And then David answered. So what did he say? Hey, David, come on in. All's forgiven. You're good. You're safe. David doesn't do that. Instead of saying, okay, I'll come back in. I'll be your guy again. What he says is, here's your spirit, king. Let one of your young men come over and take it. The Lord rewards every man for his righteousness and his faithfulness. For the Lord gave you into my hand this day. He's acknowledging God put this before him. But it was put before him so that David might reveal the righteousness and faithfulness of God. To show mercy. To show where the true kingdom is. And I would not put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. Behold, as your life was precious this day in my my sight... So may the life be precious in the sight of the Lord. And may he deliver me. (laughs) He's not saying, I'm looking to you, Saul, to deliver me. May God deliver me out of all tribulation. Then Saul said to David, blessed be you, my son David. You will do many things and will succeed in them. And so David went into his way and Saul returned into his place. Why was David in this area? Why was he there in the cave of Engedi? Why was he there in chapter 23, rescuing that town from the Philistines? He had a chance to be in Moab if we go back again to chapter 23. But God said, I want you out in the land of Judah. God had put him in this place to endure these tribulations, to endure these places, to train him. To ultimately to reveal God's kingdom. God places us in these positions. To ultimately to reveal the true king. Sometimes we look at life and we want to say. Oh wow. Hey God's provided this opportunity. For me to do this. It seems a little unethical. But hey you know. All the plans align. Let me go ahead and do this. Let me, surely there's nothing wrong with it. But God gives us the opportunity to actually reveal a different hope. Now you might say, well, is Saul changed? What does it matter?
It's not just about so that other people would see and believe, but so that his own children would be discipled and have a taste and a longing for the true kingdom. So we don't dictate our faithfulness based on, oh, this person will believe or respond or maybe they won't. We do it because God has called us to reveal his glory into the darkness. And friends, we'd be surprised how often God will change the hardest and darkest of hearts. But even if he doesn't, may Christ be glorified. May Christ be revealed by people who are changed by his love and by his grace. See, just as God revealed his glory to his people through Jesus Christ, God will reveal his glory through his people by giving them opportunities to share in Christ's suffering and in his resurrection. So my question to you is, what are the places in your life where you're struggling because you are trying to build your own kingdom? You don't call it a kingdom. You just call it just trying to get your way. It may not even seem like it's a bad thing. It may feel like you're being pushed all over the place by by your spouse, by your children, by your boss. It's my time. Where are the opportunities for you instead to reveal Christ? To show yourself your hunger for a different kingdom. That begins... My friends, not with looking and saying, hey, you know, where are some of the places uh, I'm most angry and therefore how can I change my anger? But actually, it goes far, far deeper than that. It goes to taking every thought captive in obedience to Christ. You see, we can look at the places where we revolt in anger, maybe at our spouse or our children. And we ask, what is it that I'm deeply afraid of? What is it in my thought process? When I, when I find myself daydreaming to escape, maybe I'm daydreaming to, uh, because I, the boss comes at me and rather than just being meek, I give him a verbal jujitsu, right? And I really, I just humiliate him and I embarrass him, putting him in his place. Our longings to do that, where, where are your fears? But how does the wonder of Jesus Christ, his grace, the fact that he chooses you and loves you on the basis of his grace through faith and nothing else, how does that free you from those urges? How does that free you from that fear? How does that give you a taste for a better kingdom? A better king. And it is a better kingdom. Yes, it may. It's going to involve suffering. It's going to involve difficulties. You will be disciplined. But the kingdoms of this world, they offer you life, but all they give you is death and imprisonment. Christ, he makes no bones about it. To follow him is to take up his cross. Take up your cross and follow him. 
But he also says within that, he has come to give you life, life more abundantly. You find yourself more fully when you lose yourself and you fix your eyes upon Jesus. Because in Jesus, you find the one who loves you more than you can possibly imagine and is able to bring a healing and a peace to your life that you truly long for. It is the only peace and the rest that will actually give you satisfaction.